About that time, King Herod began to harass some who belonged to the church. He had James, John's brother, killed with a sword. And when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he arrested Peter as well. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. He put Peter in prison, handing him over to four squads of soldiers, 16 in all, who guarded him. He planned to charge him publicly after the Passover. And while Peter was held in prison, the church offered earnest prayer to God for him. The night before Herod was going to bring Peter's case forward, Peter was asleep between two soldiers and bound with two chains with soldiers guarding the prison entrance. Suddenly, an angel from the Lord appeared and a light shone in the prison cell. After nudging Peter on his side to awaken him, the angel raised him up and said, quick, get up. The chains fell from his wrists. The angel continued, get dressed. Put your sandals on. Peter did as he was told. The angel said, put on your coat and follow me. Following the angel, Peter left the prison. However, he didn't realize the angel had actually done all this. He thought he was seeing a vision. He passed the first and second guard and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. And after leaving the prison, they proceeded the length of one street when abruptly the angel was gone. The word of God. Thanks. Please be seated. All right, show of hands if you have been keeping up with the Tokyo Olympics that started last week Friday. How many of you have exchanged all of your personal life for this time? It's cool, I know quite a few. Yes, it's okay, it's all right. Did you know, um, and it's, a, it's, a, it's something that kind of sucks you in unexpectedly, did you know that there are over 10,305 athletes competing at this Tokyo Olympics this year. 10,000, 10,000 people. It's fascinating. 10,305 individuals who have signed up to compete against each other and they are purposefully putting themselves on trial. Purposefully asking a panel of other humans to judge them, to judge their skill and ultimately award them, hopefully award them a medal that will separate them from the rest of the other 10,000 athletes. Many of these athletes have been competing and preparing for this day of judgment, I call it, since they were children. Hours and hours and hours, money, sweat, tears, frustration, failures, and wins later, they are one of the largest gatherings representing their countries in hopes to come out on top as champions. Many of these athletes will come out of this with large sums of money, right? Great contracts, partnerships, deals, sponsorships, many, many medals and many trophies and recognitions. And perhaps what I think is one of the more powerful outcomes is the public recognition in their community and in the world that they are someone. 
that they are very, very good, that they are excellent at this one thing. One particular match that caught my eye this last week, I confess, uh, was China versus China in the women's table tennis division. Single table tennis division. Yes, yes, for those of you who might be like, what is that? This is the professional realm of ping pong. Mm -hmm. And fun fact, we're a community of ping pongers ourselves. There is a ping pong club that gathers here on Mondays in the fellowship hall around six o'clock, I think. Talk to Bart Vaughn. So if you are excited about uh, starting your career in professional table tennis, you have a chance. So truly, I had no idea that such intensity could be played and had at table tennis. More significantly, I wondered what it was going to be like to compete against your own country. Your teammates, both of you fixed on the same goal and then for that one goal to make it so that now you were one against the other. A little bit of a paradox, at least it has been to me. In this last match, this last week, I heard one reporter say over and over, it's China versus China for the gold. Two people on the same team competing to win a medal, a title and a recognition. Spoiler alert, in the battle of China versus China in singles women's division for table tennis, China got the gold medal. So these are, in some ways, these moments, they're going to be beautiful and awesome celebrations for many people, and inevitably, they're also going to be disappointments for others, right? Not everyone can win. This was a phrase that I learned very early on in my, my years here with you all when I was helping run the sports program through the church. I wanted so badly to give all of the kids a participation medal, even a trophy for all I know, because they showed up and they tried. I wanted to instill in them the importance of being part of something, of showing up weekly and daily for practice, for showing up for your community. I wanted them to know that they were noticed that they were counted and that they mattered. But many parents constantly reminded me, our kids have to know that one day they will lose. To be on trial and to be weighed for one's performance and our beliefs, it seems to be the way of most of the world. This is how it works. We have to prepare ourselves for losing. We have rewarded those who meet, however, a certain standard. And mostly, we appreciate these norms of our world and, and sadly, in and, and reality, in the world outside of this prestigious Olympics, we have come to punish those who do not fit the larger societal common experience. For some, they will truly be locked up in prison-like spaces. For others, we have set them apart on the margins of society because they do not fit 
what the rest of society deems acceptable. For some, we will fight for them, and for others, they will fall through the cracks. The world of Christianity is no exception to this. Christianity has likely one of the longest histories of such treatments, of segregation of people due to religious or theological preferences and expressions, right? In today's scripture reading, we come into this story where early Christians are on trial by everyone, it seems, in Rome. The early Christians, they were being sought for, as we read in verse 1, hunted, if you will, almost like a sport to Herod. As we keep reading, we quickly learn that the defeated James, John's brother, was imprisoned and separated from his community, and he was defeated. He did lose, and in this particular trial and judgment, his loss ended in death. It's interesting that scripture mentions that he was killed with the sword, it says. It was meant to be a more compassionate way of dying, a form of death where you were beheaded instead of crucified like Jesus was crucified and many others to come. We don't know if there was actually a specific reason for why James was taken in. There was no indication that he actually broke laws or anything of the sort. And sadly, this is not unusual during this time period. Persecution was a fact of life for the early Christians. It was something that brought pleasure, it says, and comfort to a community, one community versus another. And in this case, it was the Jews, it says. King Herod appeased the people. He wanted to be on their good side as their leader by hunting for more Christians. In one translation, it reads that Herod laid hands on those who belonged to the church in order, with purpose, to mistreat them. The early Christians, they were persecuted either by Jews for claiming that Jesus was the Messiah and also by other Jewish Christians for accepting Gentile converts, those without requiring them to be circumcised, as we learned last week. And they were also criticized by Gentiles because they only believed in one God. We can see that the odds were certainly stacked against the early Christians. Everywhere that they looked, something was wrong. And in every era of leadership in the Roman government, it also brought what seems like more chaos and death for the early Christians. Where was their safe haven? Where were they to turn? During the reign of King Herod, so many violent persecutions happen to the Christians. Today's reading is just another day in the life of an early Christian, however. The season was ripe for picking, in particular, this community because it was during the festival, during the time of Pentecost. Not unlike the time when Jesus himself was persecuted, he was also persecuted during the time of unleavened bread, during the time of Pentecost. Hundreds of people, Jewish, Jewish Christians, Christians, they came to celebrate this sacred festival, which to me feels so ironic, right? 
It's the time of celebrating this deliverance of once enslaved people, and half of those very people celebrating were taking it amongst themselves to enslave, imprison, and kill people in their community based on their beliefs and practices. The early Christians were not only persecuted, however, for their religious beliefs. Jews and Gentiles were able to coexist with one another. We know this. They made room for one another. <clears throat> in many ways, they accepted their differences in their religious traditions. It was the Christian confession that Jesus is Lord that was the significant problem in Rome. This was a direct challenge and a threat to absolute rule of Roman Empire. When Peter is imprisoned, it seems as if King Herod considered him an extreme threat. We read that, right? 16 guards were assigned to guard Peter. 16 guards. Personally, it's overkill. We don't have any indication. I don't remember that uh, Peter himself was ever described as a particularly large human. I mean, is he ever, I mean, did he bench press anything? I mean, he was no Samson, right? But even so, King Herod feels immensely threatened. Pastor Otis has this saying in our office, it's not logical, it's not rational, but it's something. So the people in Rome had subscribed to this Roman dream, and it caused for them to dehumanize all those who didn't meet the same views and ideals as them. Last week, Pastor Raywin reminded us of the dangers of labeling those people who are different from us, whether it's religion, ideals, political views, gender expression, sexuality, whatever that list is for us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That list is long. And all of this in the name of tradition and culture the citizens of Rome had assigned themselves gods and lords over human life, it turns out. Prison conditions in this time were bleak. It was likely that Peter had to use his own clothes as a blanket for warmth. The prisons did not provide any sort of accommodations, please let us be honest. And since he was chained down in between guards in the middle of them, it was likely he was sleeping on dirty floors where countless of other prisoners lived out their last days. Prisoners were not fed regularly and they certainly weren't given the luxury and dignity of taking a bath and or were they given a chance or a place where they could relieve themselves. Can you imagine what it's like to be human and to be imprisoned in this way? These were not quarters for holding people for a fair trial. They were the antithesis of this. The author, Willie Jennings, writes, they were the antithesis to the good news. It was a place where their humanity was stripped from them, where they were shamed and where they were denied their privacy and space to be. Jennings suggests that in this time of early Christian church, and well, I think even now, prison, he says, always announced worldly power and reveals those intoxicated with the lust 
for violence. From the sight of the warden, the guards, and those benefiting financially and politically from this mechanism of incarceration, somebody benefited from this system. Not everyone can win, though, right? And in this story, King Herod maintained the upper hand, and it was the Jews and the Jewish Christians who fueled his campaign. I asked myself this question this week, and I wonder if you can help me on this Sabbath as we continue to ask this question, why in this sermon series? Knowing what we know about the early Christian church community, the trials that they faced, and the inhumane ways that they treated people, I wondered this week, and I wonder with you now, what is the Christian community going to do better all of these years later with that knowledge? How is it that our gathering in the world, whether we're here in this synagogue or whether we are at home, in our time of prayer, when we claim our faithfulness to Jesus, when we confess that Jesus is Lord in our lives and to the world, how is that going to impact the world that we live in? Theologian Walter Brueggemann reminds us in his book, The Gospel of Hope, that may be a way to move forward and a way to think about it in a more honorable way is to think about the fact that we have more things in common with each other than we think. He says, in particular, about Jews and Christians, what Jews and Christians have in common alone and no one else is that we believe that there is one who is coming to make the world right. We believe that God has not quit on the world and has not given up on God's own will for the world and God's promise to make the world whole, safe, and acceptable, and peaceable. We believe that because of God's steadfastness, the world will not remain a killing field of violence and brutality, of hate and or fear. In today's scripture reading, we see that the early church was trying to remember, maybe to get on the same page. Verse five says, while Peter was held in prison, it was the church that offered earnest prayer to God for Peter. The church was fervently praying. They were actively participating in a hopeful way forward that declared that the ruler of the world and the Lord of the world was not Herod, was not Rome, but that the ruler and Lord of the world was in fact Jesus. They were actively praying to God for the power to intervene in these killing actions of the state. Jenning reflects that we are fated to repeat the behavior that brings incarceration as Christians. Why? Because we speak truth to power. 
as we saw that Jesus and the followers of Jesus after him did as well, it would put the people, it would put us again and again inside locked doors and braced by chains. So we watch out in the world today for failing systems. The weak, the poor, and all that that works against insurgent voices pressing for systematic change, Jennings says. And like the early Christians, we cannot grow tired of this journey. And we must trust that God is already ahead of all of it. The second half of this reading from today, verses 6 to 10, is what is often understood as the escape of Peter. I believe it's less about Peter escaping and rather that it's a reminder that God continues to deliver those who are held captive by failing systems. This is not a story about Peter, even though it's a story about Peter. It's a story about Jesus and the goodness of God prevailing and delivering. This is a moment to redefine hope for an entire community, for Peter himself, and for the community that he serves, the lost ones even, according to the rest of society. Peter's only hope for deliverance in this particular situation was a holy intervention, an intervention from Jesus. Scripture says that the angel comes, delivers Peter by removing the chains binding him to the system. And he restores Peter's humanity and dignity by inviting Peter to clothe his naked body. The angel escorts Peter out, not in hiding, but in assurance. The angel has nothing to hide because the angel comes on behalf of the Holy One. Peter's captivity comes after the resurrection of Jesus. Peter's delivery was a confession and profession that Jesus is Lord and that he and the early Christian community could have confidence that Jesus was truly alive. Peter was not having a dream and the resurrection of Jesus was also not a dream even though it happened 10 years before this. The empire that threatened to end Jesus did not conquer Jesus then, and it would not conquer this moment with Peter. Jesus had more work for Peter to do. Peter is to continue sharing the gospel of hope to all those being held captive and to all those praying earnestly for those in captivity. Today, as believers and followers of Jesus, we we ask for affirmation of faith, in our faith, to be courageous people of God because it's our job to continue announcing to the world without shame and without fear and without reluctance that we truly are already free in Jesus. We can trust that even the smallest of faith Jesus reminds us, all you need is the faith of a mustard seed, tiny, tiny faith. And Jesus can use that 
and use our participation in the world as agents of hope. And with this courage, we ought to seek for where the silence of voices are. We have to seek for where the prisoners are held. We must speak against powers that suppress vulnerable and weak in our community. It's easy to spot the rock stars, right? It's easy to spot the athletes. It's easy to spot all of the different kinds of people. But what about those that don't ever get talked about? There are many people in our communities living in these physical and metaphorical prisons with no light towards deliverance. And maybe you have experienced this. Or maybe you know somebody who has experienced this. Did you know that in the United States, we are the country with the highest incarceration rates worldwide? And it is also home to the largest number of prisoners. There are roughly 2.1 million people that were incarcerated in the U.S in 2020, last year. Los Angeles County is on the map for the largest jail in the US with almost 20,000 inmates. My question was, is that really the best that a first world country in 2021 can do? I appreciate a reflection from Jennings on this. Of course, People do horrible things worthy of prison and tied to capital punishment. But, he says, similar to, but the Christians prayed for Peter. But Christians are given a wider lens than media fiction of crime and punishment. We have an inheritance born of life inside the cell and an intimate knowledge of power misuse through the foulest foolishness of equating crime and punishment with wickedness and righteousness. We can do better than this. We cannot stop trying to see each other as valuable. We cannot stop trying to see each other as loved humans by God. We cannot stop trying to partner with the Holy One to deliver those who are in captivity. Because no one in the world of Jesus is lost to Jesus. Our ear, I believe, has to be turned toward the voice of Jesus. As we move forward, it's the voice of Jesus that we have to measure all of our values by. Those are uh, those are the ways that our religious ideologies, our political values, our societal preferences, and even as we grow in our faith, our priorities ought to be turned towards Jesus. Because it turns out, my friends, that with Jesus, we don't have to move in caution because one day we will lose it turns out that walking with Jesus, we have already won. And we don't have a need to fight for a place or a medal or recognition because the Holy One has already 
created it for us. We all have access to the goodness of God. And so my prayer for you is that we may leave this kind of imprint in the world today. Amen.